Podcast Wednesday afternoon, March 2nd, 2016. Here in New York City, I'm joined by a good friend of mine, a writer from the Wall Street Journal, Mr. Chris Herring. You can follow him on Twitter at HerringWSJ. Chris, what's up, my man? How you doing? I'm good, Randy. How are you? Doing good, man. Doing good. You know, it's, it, it's funny because maybe I have bad timing or bad luck, but every time I try to schedule to do a, a show, um, talk about NBA or the Knicks. Something happens with the Knicks. Last time I tried to get you on, Derek Fisher got fired that morning, and now the, today, um, you know, little uproar with Jimmer for dead not getting a, a second ten day contract. So either I got bad luck or timing with you, man. Well, I'll, I'll put it this way: one of those things is not like the other. I, I think at least the majority of the Knicks fan base will be able to get over Jimmer being cut. But yeah, the Fisher one. Uh, I can make time to talk on a day where Jimmer is cut. Uh, the <laughs> thing was a, a little bit unexpected for most of us, and so that uh, that did make that day pretty hectic. So it's, it's good to be on with you now. Right. I mean, and, and I usually don't start with with Twitter questions I get from from my Twitter family and everything, but majority uh, of what I've been getting is about you know Jimmer ten day contract. Was it about? Sure. Um, you know, was he given a, a legit chance? Why bring him up if you're not going to play him? So this is like five questions all into one. So, I mean, once you once the news came down, was it a shock surprise? Did you feel like he got a legit chance? And, you know, if they're not going to play him, why bring him up at all? I don't know. I mean, sometimes you, you want to make good on kind of responsibility you have to, to someone's agent or to that player. Um, Jimmer has done pretty much everything he could do at the, at the D League level. Um, you know, he's one of the few guys on that roster that you know that has had real opportunities to play in the NBA. Um, so, you know, when when you do all that and you do everything that's asked and you know the offense and you know the D League isn't really doing anything for you anymore at that point, you, you call a person up. You have a roster spot. There's no reason not to. Um, you know, I, I would. I wouldn't go as far as to say that it was done strictly for publicity. Uh, you know, the Knicks obviously don't mind publicity a lot of the time, but the Knicks can't sell out games. I mean, their, their TV ratings are down lately with how they've been playing. But they also, I don't think you need Jimmer for that to, to help people tune in the games, because especially if they know he's not going to play. Um, I'm not sure how much that actually even helps. But um, like I said, sometimes you just want to make good on the fact that you tell someone, look, if you perform well enough, you'll get your shot. And so, I mean, technically they, they called him up. It's a nice payday for him. Um, you know, not a full season salary or anything like that, but um, it's obviously more than what he's making at the D-League level. Um, so it helps satisfy some of those things. But, you know, I'm just like the fans in the sense that I don't quite understand what the point was in calling him up if you're not actually going to give him a real opportunity, I think. It, it boiled down to five minutes of play, scored seven points in those five minutes. Right. Everything was done in crunch time, or not crunch time, garbage time. And so, you know, how much, how meaningful any of that actually was, is, you know, is up for debate. I don't think it really meant much of anything, which is why they're going to cut them. But, you know, it also was awkward where they waited until the last three minutes of the game yesterday to really give him an opportunity to get out there. And by that point, you know, the crowd is chanting for him to come in the game. Mm-hmm. The rest of the, the players are getting booed for taking shots. 
that take away from Jimmer's opportunity to shoot. And, you know, that, that's just an awkward situation. It makes you wonder why they did it. It makes you wonder why they'd call him up if Rambus didn't plan to play him. It's awkward in the first place that Rambus has this job and, you know, by all accounts would probably like to keep it long term, even though him trying to do that takes away from the other player's opportunity to play because Rambus wants to win and wants to put veterans out there. He thinks it's going to give him the best chance to win. So it's kind of an awkward situation all the way around. And, I, you know, I actually said last night, at this point, I have no sense of what they're actually trying to accomplish anymore. And as a fan, if I was a fan, it would make me a little bit upset that it just seems like they're kind of all over the map right now. Last night, it was a little funny because, I mean, this probably has no ramification on, on why he's not bringing, being brought back. But when he took that shot at the, at the end of the game, and, and I guess Portland thought it was it was over and, and everything, and he just, you know, took that three-point shot and he got fouled. And, and something something about it made me feel like maybe, he, you know, he kind of felt a little different about taking that shot. Maybe he should not have taken that shot because people on Portland were looking at it and maybe his teammates – we're looking at him. Not saying that's the reason why of anything, but just say something like that is like you know you're down whatever 15 plus. The game is over. Why are you trying to attempt a three point shot? You know, and again, that probably has no recollection of of what's gonna what's gonna happen to him. But something like that maybe feel like I don't know. Maybe maybe he, he you know he may not be brought back. Well, the whole play was bizarre. I mean, it seemed like it might have been Shimmer's agent you know, controlling the clock because he possessed the ball for like two seconds and even dribbled it once or twice. Yeah. There was only point eight left on the clock and the clock has never started. So, you know, it gave him an extra opportunity to take a shot, but, uh, and then obviously get fouled, but it, it was just weird in the first place how that even shook out. And then, like you said, you could even see him if you go back and watch a replay of that, you know, that exchange, Jimmer was, you know, set up to, to take the pass, the inbound pass, and you could kind of see the wheels turning in his head of like, okay, there's really no time left, but I'm also a 10-day contract guy. Should I make an effort to score here when the game's out of hand that, you know, could be meaningful to me to score a basket here? And, you know, I've got all these fans cheering for me. I may not be back on another contract after this. Right. Or am I best off just letting the clock expire, which is what you're supposed to do to be a good sport, essentially, where a game is over and you don't make an effort to score there. Um, but, you know, he kind of had nothing to lose. I mean, if he's probably going to get cut anyway, what difference does it make if he tries to score that last basket? Um, you know, no one's going to yell at him. Uh, you could argue about the professionalism of it, but you could also argue that he should have been getting more than five minutes over a 10-day span. So, I don't know. In the long run, it really doesn't matter. I mean, I, you know, I know it's going to be debated and talked about a little bit here and there, you know, the people that feel really passionately that he should have gotten more of a chance mm. are going to say that and going to feel upset about this. But, I, I mean, it's a guy that hasn't worked out for good teams. He hasn't worked out for bad teams. Uh, you know, and I'm, I'm of the opinion that people like that are more likely to work out on a good team where you just have to fill in some gaps here and there. Right. The Knicks have so many needs, including defense at the point guard position. And I don't know that he would fit them that well anyway. He hasn't shot the ball that well over the last year, year and a half. So I don't think they're going to lose out much here. Um, it's really odd to me how how much of a hero this guy is with certain parts of the fan base. Um, I don't know what it is. You know, some people, it's funny, some people will tweet me and they'll be like, it's just a, a white college star, and that's why people like him so much. And, you know, he's obviously from the state of New York. Maybe that's what it is. I don't know. But it's, you know, it, it's a little odd. I mean, the team has 
two legitimate guys, one who's already a star and one that could be. And it's just a little odd to see people cheering so hard for a guy like that. Um, but, but to each his own. Um, you know, it's cool that they brought him up, but it, he's not going to make the difference between winning and losing games. Chris, uh, uh, a month ago, the Knicks were 22 and 22. Now they're 25 and 37, 3 and 15 in the last 18. Um, Fisher is gone. Ramis is now your new coach. People in the crowd screaming for for Jimmer and and, and T-shirts and, and and let's go Heat and the whole morale in the Garden has completely changed 360. Um, how drastic has this team changed uh, since late January, early February? Well, a lot. I mean, like you said, when you when you change the coach, that's a pretty big move. Particularly when you change the coach and you're still kind of in a playoff hunt. Um, you know, granted, they probably weren't going to make the playoffs at that point when they fired Derek Fisher, but I think mm-hmm. uh, I think there were maybe 23 and 32 when they made that move. And, um, you know, obviously stuff was starting to slip for them and they weren't playing well and they were getting out to really poor starts. Um, but, I mean, watching them now, it's really hard to say that that's because of Derek Fisher. Um, I think Rambis has been a little bit worse. I think he's been more inconsistent than Derek with his rotation. Um, I think the other thing, too, which is kind of separate, but going back to what I said before, a coach that probably wants to keep the job long-term, and so as a result of that, you're seeing Carmelo play huge minutes. Um, you know, you're, you're seeing Jaron Grant play relatively well some nights, but then not getting any playing time the other nights. He's already sat out as many games under Rambis and gotten DNPs in those games as he did in the 54 games under Fisher with Jaron Grant. So I don't, I don't quite understand the rhyme or reason to any of this stuff right now. And, and that frustrates me more, or would frustrate me more as a fan, than what I was seeing from Fisher. The stuff with Fisher, it seemed like, was more behind the scenes with, with Phil and with the, the coaching staff and Phil not feeling as if there was enough communication, Phil maybe being disappointed with some of the off-court stuff with Derek Fisher. But honestly, you know, at least Fisher was a, a new coach and a young coach and a first-time coach who was kind of learning and showing some signs of growth at times during the season. Right. And now we're at a point where I just don't quite understand what the payoff is with Rambis. Yes, he has a better relationship with Phil than Fisher did, but I, I just don't understand. You know, this guy has had his opportunity to coach before. And, you know, so what? what's really going to change about him and his philosophy? I don't know. Maybe Phil feels as if he's more in line with, with what he wants just from Rambis because they coached together before. And I don't know. It just, it just seems weird to me. Um, but everything has changed. You know, the, the team um, just never really got back on track from when Carmelo was out with those injuries. And Lance Thomas had his injuries, and it, it had a huge impact on the team. Mm-hmm. And they just never really recovered. And it's, it's weird to think that they really were at 500 kind of with a decent shot to make the playoffs because they could have kept that up to some extent. But now, I mean, they're, you know, they're at a place now where they could finish 13th in the East. And, you know, to go from 8th to 13th in a couple weeks is just really mind-boggling. You know, Knicks, Knicks fans are in a familiar year where they, they're upset, they're frustrated with the team. The team is likely not making the playoffs again. Uh, you're at the games covering the Knicks, and, you know, you hear the, the, the crowd chanting, and you, you tell the whole morale was different um are, are, are we uh you know as are the fans at at like an all-time level where they're just completely fed up and had enough with everything 
I mean, I, I, I do sense some of that. Um, the booing is obviously one indication of it. You know, when I read my Twitter feed and see what people are tweeting at me, that's often a good indication of it. But some of it is misguided. One person tweeted me and said, this is worse than the Isaiah era. And it's like, well, no, it's not even close to that. Oh, God, no. Um, no matter how <laughs> bad things look. I mean, you, you still have, after next year, you, or uh, after this year, I'm sorry, you have your draft, all your draft picks at this point. Right. Um, and, you know, you don't have a ton of bad contracts on the books that so you're going to try to steal away for pennies on the dollar. Um, you know, you don't have sexual harassment suits, at least not that we know of. Uh, floating back and forth for you know eleven million dollars, they say that's so not it's not nearly as bad as it was during that time. But it, it you know it is it is a season that's gotten away from the team. Uh, you also have Porzingis, which I think changes the dynamic and makes it so that you can kind of absorb a year like this and still feel somewhat good about the future because you've got a player to build around. And at least instead of having to go out and you know try to find a star, you know, hope that you can draft a star in the next few years. You have that guy already, and now it's a matter of trying to build around him, which is still difficult. But at least you, you kind of have a way forward, and you know exactly what the objective is. So, you know, so that's the challenge for them, but it's not nearly as deep or as horrible as what they had with Isaiah um, during those years. But the fact that you've got people asking that question and whether this is more disappointing in some ways because they actually have the talent to make the playoffs, or had a situation where they looked like they were capable of making the playoffs, it's probably frustrating, and in some ways maybe it's more frustrating than some of the stuff in that era. And you are starting to see some of these off-the-court issues crop up with, with the questions about Fisher and the off-season stuff with Barnes and then the crazy weird stuff with Rambis and Twitter. I mean, it, it is starting to feel like one of those classic Knicks seasons where just everything is weird and backwards and a distraction, and, and even the stuff with Timmer, but... I still don't think it's nearly as bad as what some people have made it out to be because, you know, imagine how bad it would be if all those things were happening and KP wasn't a good player. So at least they have that. And I think that's probably still the most important takeaway from the season regardless of what else happens. And now now you can add Melo getting blocked by the rim as part of the ongoing continuation of, of just how weird this season has been, Chris. <laughs> Pretty, uh, yeah. pretty eye-opening that he couldn't get up high enough <laughs> to dunk that ball. I mean, granted, it wasn't anything that counted. It was a dead ball, but um, it, it kind of was like a microcosm of the season. Was the Knicks almost get high enough and, you know, in the race enough to really make stuff interesting, and then they just yep. fall to the ground and it kind of collapse. And, um, and also maybe a reminder of the fact that, you know, if they're going to try to do this with Mellow, that the window – is closing, you know, maybe not game by game. You don't see it, but, you know, when you look at a situation like that where he can't get up high enough to dunk the ball and no one's defending him, that's uh, pretty eye-opening. It's funny on the one hand, but on the other hand, it was actually a little bit sad, too. Yeah, and, you know, speaking of Melo, you know, he, he, he has the deciding factor of, of any trade talk. He, he, he has that no-trade clause in his contract. He keeps saying he wants to stay. Porzingis wants um, Melo to stay. Um I, I believe he's in year two of, of, of the five-year deal. If I'm wrong, correct me. But year year two of, of the five-year deal, what's the likelihood that Melo plays out the remaining three years of that contract with the Knicks? I mean, I guess the question is what's the likelihood of the team actually finding worthwhile pieces or a worthwhile situation for him to stay in? You know, if they don't go out and get any free agents and they – 
you know, and, and they finished this year winning 27 games. I mean, you know, if they only win one or two more games the rest of the way, mm. then, you know, I, I don't think people realize the fact that this guy made the playoffs every year for the first, was it 11 years of his career? I think so. And, and now, now the last two, and this is going to make three. So maybe it was, maybe it was the first 10 years of his career. This will make the third one that he doesn't make the playoffs. And, um, you know, it, it, I, I always kind of laugh when people say that Melo's not a Hall of Famer or that he's somehow overrated. I mean, the guy literally took a team that had missed the playoffs for eight or nine straight years in Denver and got them into the playoffs each of the first um, eight, nine years of his career. So, he, he, I mean, by any definition, you have to call him a franchise-changing player. A franchise-changing player doesn't have to mean it's a championship level team, but he, he took the team out of the pit and made them a playoff team, you know, largely by himself. Um, he did have some good teammates there in Denver, but he did a lot to kind of change the trajectory of a franchise and was used to winning. Maybe not used to winning championships, but he was used to making the playoffs every single year. And now he's getting to a place where he's starting to get the opposite of that with New York, and it's happening at the same time as aging and missing chunks that are uncontested after the whistle blows. So, um, you know, I do think he should consider it. Um, it seems a little off that, you know, that he's getting most frustrated right now after the trade deadline when he could have, you know, obviously made it known that he wanted to waive the clause, uh, which maybe would have made sense for him. But at this point now, I mean, he should be exploring that. Issue, you know, and I think the Knicks are at real risk here, real danger of the fact of him wanting to do that. But that might be in the Knicks' best interest as well. Um, you know, I think Melo has kind of tailored his game a little bit, played harder on defense, has worked harder to move the ball. So, I don't know. I mean, it seems like it might be in both par- both parties' best interest. But, you know, I think they're moving dangerously close to the idea of having to really explore that because, um, you know, putting role players around him works for a while. But I think it leaves the team perilously thin um, in terms of needing Melo on the court at all times and needing – you know, a, a stopper or two like Lance Thomas, you, you basically can't have any injuries if you're going to have a team like that. That's kind of why you need a second star with Melo uh, so that he's not doing it all by himself, but also if he has to miss a few games due to an injury, that they have some, some leeway to be able to withstand that. Now, do you get the notion from from the fans you meet in person or your your Twitter activity is that more more fans are – um, leaning towards like they're anti mellow as opposed to pro mellow. Uh, no, I don't get that impression. I mean, I don't think most people are blaming him for this. I, I do think there are some people that say that, and some people that have these weird, um, esoteric kind of proclamations where they say, you know, I think mellow needs to step up and be more of a leader. Someone tweeted me me that message yesterday, and I said. Well, first of all, he has been. Um, you know, I talked to him and you know about all this different stuff, and I wrote a long story about mm-hmm. how he tried to take on more of a leadership role this year, and right. particularly with KP, but also on the bench while he was out with injury. And I don't think <laughs> Melo's leadership is the reason the team is losing. I think you know Melo's injury was part of the reason that they started to lose, and I think the fact that they don't have very many talented players outside of their you know their first six or seven guys. I think that's a big part of it. They don't have much depth, and so they, you know, they have one or two injuries, and the team goes on a huge downward slope. Um, so I don't think that has anything to do with it. But people, you know, people have been saying that 
the leadership has stuff to do with it. People have been saying that Melo not passing the ball has stuff to do with it. And it's like, well, he's actually up to all those things this year. I don't really know what else he could do. Um, he hasn't shot great this year. You know, he's coming off a major surgery. It took him a while to get his legs. And then I don't think he was ever completely rehabilitated from all the injuries that he did have uh, later in the season. But I, I think now it's not about being anti-Mello. I think you could want to move him or want for him to waive his no-trade clause and still be pro-Mello or be supportive of him and just realize that at this point it doesn't make a whole lot of sense anymore for him to try to you know, wait out this process until the team can win when Porzingis probably won't be the best that he's going to be as a player, assuming he's healthy until he's 26 or 27 years old. If that's the case, you're asking Carmelo to wait another six years. I mean, you're actually going into another contract with him, and I don't really know if that makes the most sense. So I you know, I, I think you, it's completely possible to be pro-Melo, but also still think that it's the best move to trade him. And, uh, you know, it, it, for people that don't think that way, I think, it's, you know, you've got these people that are kind of like, diametrically opposed, where everything is black and white and there's no gray area. I think there's very much a gray area. That you can say Carmelo helps you win or is one of your best players and is a good player for you, but also realize that because he's not on the same timeline as AP, that it might make more sense to trade him. We are chatting with Chris Herring of the Wall Street Journal. Um, he's on Twitter at Herring WSJ. Um, the main man, Phil Jackson, Chris, uh, he, he's going to have a very busy summer. Um, he uh, he, <laughs> he he has to improve the backcourt. I think everybody on earth knows the Knicks' backcourt is just terrible, and they need help ASAP with that. They, they, they got to try to get maybe another star to pair um, Mellow with. Maybe Kevin Durant, that's an outside long shot, but you just never know it, it, You know what can happen in the NBA. Um, getting a coach that can really be productive in the system that they're trying to do or bring a brand new system, Mark Jackson, um, Tom Thibodeau. It's going to be a very busy summer for Phil Jackson. Um, if he doesn't, you know, if if he has a list and you want him to, to, to check off two out of three or whatever, what are the main things he has to bring this summer that's, before it makes you or any fan feel like, you know what, Phil Jackson is just not the guy for the job? I, I mean, I don't think we're that far away from being able to say that. It might sound a little harsh, mm-hmm. um, you know, because people know that I thought he did a really decent job over the summer building the team. Um, I, I thought that the role player role was the, the best way to go. Uh, with this team, but also, like I said, it left them very, very thin, and I also thought they made a mistake, and I was pretty vocal in saying this, that I liked the Quinn move for them, and I, I guess maybe he's been average or slightly below average for them this season, uh-huh. um, but that I didn't like the idea of them signing Kevin Serafin uh, to a deal when they clearly needed another wing player, and another wing player, while it might not have been anyone great, um, it might have prevented them from having to play Sasha as many minutes as they needed to, or they, they obviously didn't need to play him any minutes, but um, you know, at least give you alternatives to Jaron Grant, given how slow he started out this season. So, um, you know, Phil Phil has one, at least one big decision left at this point, and it is the coaching change. Who, who do you replace Derek Fisher with? Um, you know, I think Phil had the right idea by wanting Steve Kerr. Steve Kerr won an NBA title in his first year, first coach to, to ever do that in his first full season, in his, you know, first coaching job. So, I, I think uh, I, I think obviously 
he has to get the next coaching decision right. But if, if he goes in a direction and says, I've got to get my triangle guy, and so let's oh, say he goes after Luke Walton and misses on it, um, okay, that's fine, but I don't think that means you need to go right to Brian Shaw. Brian Shaw would be concerning for me on a number of levels, you know, not the least of which is the fact that he said he struggled to connect with this generation of players and the fact that he was trying to read books on how to connect with players of this age. Uh, I just don't know that that's the best route to have to go. I mean, it no, kind of sounds a lot like <laughs> what we're seeing right now with, with Phil and the fact that, you know, he, he writes these tweets and, like, people can't even really read them or understand what he's getting at. Uh-huh. And that's just kind of what strikes me about Fisher and Phil and all these guys. Like, they talk so high over people's heads sometimes uh, with with these messages and these theories. And, it, it, you know, maybe there are certain players that connect with, maybe it connected better with players of an earlier era. Or maybe, you know, Phil just had so much talent on some of these teams where it didn't matter what you told them, they were going to find a way to win. I don't doubt that Phil was a, a, a great coach, but, you know, maybe – he didn't speak that way in huddles. Um, maybe Fisher did. I don't know. But um, the fact that Shaw had a really kind of spectacular flame out there in Denver uh, would not give me a whole lot of confidence that he'd make it that much better in a big market, you know, with, with potentially a big personality with Carmelo. Um, I also don't know that it's fair, like I said, to put Carmelo, putting him in situations where he's dealing with coaches that are relatively new or that have had a really bad run-ins in, in other situations. So, um, you know, who knows? I, I'm not sure how it's best to go about it, but and I, I wouldn't have a huge problem with Walton, but it's a it's a pretty big unknown, even though he's coming from a winning situation with Golden State. Um, we don't know what he'd be like coaching, you know, an, an average subpar team. We know how he would do with an all-time great team. Um, but I don't know. It, it's very hard to tell. But Bill has to get the coaching decision right. He's got to get someone. I mean, there are too many good options out there, and people with winning records and, and you know good reputations to go get someone who's a complete unknown with no upside, and um, or someone that you feel like has had a bad run in, in a previous stop, and you know people would not be excited about. There's no reason to do that other than to satisfy the triangle requirement, and hopefully that is not a requirement this, this next run. Hey, you know what? Most people may not realize it unless you know they're, they're they, you know they're like me and you who who analyze everything. But Melo, Melo would would have Melo's been with the Knicks five years, and and that is real quick to if you think about it. Five years, and he's had more coaches in with the Knicks than he had in his entire career with the Nuggets. So that right there just tells you a lot that. Either a we're not doing something right. The Nuggets, the Nuggets did something right with having George Carl, and there was no friction over there until the you know the latter part of their relationship. But he, Melo, had one coach in Denver, for my knowledge, and he's already had four in New York. Well, yeah, I mean, part of that goes back to what we were saying before. Uh, Denver was an organization that lacked stability for the longest because they weren't good. You know, they they obviously had gone eight or nine years without making the playoffs, and all of a sudden Melo gets there. Um, they bring in George Carl, and, you know, they take off. And so that was part of it is that they had all sorts of success for a franchise that hasn't been around that long in the NBA, but they, they had, you know, kind of newfound success with all that. George Carl um, built up a good reputation there and won a lot of games there. They never quite made it to the, the NBA Finals. Uh, you know, they made the Western Conference Finals that one year. But, um, you know, they're, 
that was a city that probably didn't have the highest, highest expectations all the time because the franchise was relatively new mm. compared to a team like the Knicks. And, um, you know, and they had their star player. Carmelo was young, and so there was reason to believe that you could build around all that and, and propel them into the finals maybe at some point. Um, and they, they obviously had really hard competition to go through as well, so I don't think it was necessarily an indictment on Denver um, when they didn't make it to the finals or when they didn't make it to the Western Conference Finals. Um in New York, I mean, they, they haven't had all that much success. Um, one of the coaches that they blew through was, was kind of because Carmelo didn't really get along with, you know, D'Antoni that well. And so uh, that, that was part of it. Um, you know, when it comes to Woodson, um, I think they had stagnated and started to regress a little bit. And so you could make the argument that maybe they shouldn't have fired him. But to me, the, the bigger issue is that when you cut these guys loose, who are you replacing them with? Right. Um, you know, when they fired Woodson, to me, um, I felt like there were things they could have done right away to show some improvements. I've been kind of harping on the organization for the longest now to start prioritizing defense over offense. Um, you know, and I kind of got laughed at. Not laughed at, but I know there are a lot of people that were saying, God, no, when I wrote a, a column kind of suggesting that they take a real crack at Scott Skiles. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not for the, the full-time, long-term job, but when they fired Woodson or when they were in position to fire Woodson about midway through that season, um, you know, I made the argument that if they hired Skiles in the middle of the season, which is a rare sort of thing to do, George Carl did that last year with Sacramento, but it's very rare to fire a coach and bring in someone from outside the staff because you're changing a lot of different things all at once um, in the middle of the season. But I, I felt like hiring Skiles would have improved their defense instantly. They were still close enough in the playoff race at that point where they could have made it. You know, they have only finished one game short behind Atlanta that year. But, you know, Skiles has Orlando relatively competitive, a young Orlando team that has some talent, but a lot of people would say it's still not there. And he drives home the defensive principles, you know, probably as well as anyone not named Tom Thibodeau. So, you know, I, I just feel like there were people out there and, you know, instead of kind of taking a real serious look at people like that because they brought in Phil. They let Phil do what he wanted to, and he hired Fisher. Um, he couldn't really knock the Fisher hiring that much because nobody knew what to expect from him. Um, new coach, hadn't coached before. And for the same reason that you couldn't knock Steve Kerr. Steve Kerr works out with him. Uh, Derek Fisher struggled mightily in his first year with a bad roster. Um, so the question now is who do you replace um, – Rambus and Fisher with, and so that I think you know we're at this point we're we're in a position where we're going to praise Phil's choice to get KP, which was not his choice alone. There are obviously people that influenced it and helped him with it, but we're going to praise him for that. You know, even if KP gets hurt, it it looks like a good pick because KP has all the talent in the world. Um, You know, I, I think Carmelo depending on what they end up doing with him the next couple of years, it could be a failed move to have brought him back at that much money. And the the coaching decision is kind of going to be the, the wild card. You know, is, is he going to make the right call with that? And if not, I think we might be getting to a point where we view this era with Phil as a, as a pretty clear failure, even though he might have put a building block in place with KP. Um, when, you miss, when you swing and miss on two coaching hires, and those are the only two ones that you make, and you fail to build a good roster around Carmelo and, you know, KP, um, you know, that's kind of a, a big part of it. You know, you can't contend if you don't have other guys on your roster outside of one or two people for the most part, unless you're 
like Oklahoma City and you've got two of the best five players in the league. So, um, you know, Phil may not be cut out for this, and we're still figuring out the answer to that question. But, um, you know, his his rigid sense of how they have to run this offense, um, it might be doing way, way more harm than it's doing good at this point. I think it's pretty clear. Now, you mentioned the way Phil Jackson has been tweeting lately. I guess, you know, everybody was getting a, a, a crack out of that. Now, the last time that you played basketball, you know, did, has anybody ever told you that you remind them of Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf? <laughs> no, no. Uh, the best one I've ever gotten was Chauncey Phillips, the comparison. Just oh, really? Not being great, but also just kind of quietly doing the things that people – take for granted um, and, and so that sort of thing but no uh, but to that question I mean it, it just I guess I understand why Phil does it I, I get the impression that he's kind of like he reminds me of kind of like a Twitter troll just in general like you know someone that's got like 18 followers the difference is Phil has you know thousands and thousands of followers and says stuff like that that he knows will kind of like get under people's skin and then acts is if he's all surprised by the reaction it gets in the long run. We're like, oh, you guys thought I meant this. Like, get a grip, you know, and the same thing with the how's it going. And then he, he that's becoming a theme now where he says one thing that gets people riled up, and then a day or two later he comes back and clarifies it where, you know, like the average person would tweet something and then immediately tweet right after it to kind of clarify what they meant if they couldn't get it all in 140 characters. But Phil seems to like to rile up people and, and kind of, you know, force a conversation or drive a conversation. Um, and, you know, I think we're kind of underrating how much of that might be to distract the average fan. You know, if, if we can get people to talk about this as opposed to the team's losing streak, maybe it's helpful and maybe it kind of takes the heat off Rambis or Carmelo or what have you. Um, you know, I have no sense of whether that's why. I don't know why Phil tweets that way. Um, some of it is funny, some of it is odd, some of it seems really reactive to kind of the media attention and coverage that he's getting. Um, you know, obviously a couple of days after he makes the decision to fire Fisher, um, you know, a lot of people started writing about how bad it would make him look if he was inflexible about the offense and whether they were only going to get a triangle coach. And then he puts out this really long, winding, convoluted Twitter post about how he he thinks he's going to be more open-minded or can be more open-minded about it than what people are giving him credit for. And, you know, it just the, the whole reason it seemed like he wrote that was because people had been writing columns about how the triangle might doom the Knicks if Phil's not willing to move away from it. And so um, I don't know how to feel about that. I don't know how much fans care about that, but it is a little weird that he's kind of got a Twitter reaction for all these things that people are paying attention to. He's, he's entitled to his opinion, but... I don't think people would care one way or the other if, if the team just started winning. That's all the fans really want. Um, you know, whether Phil's going to talk, whether he's not going to talk, whether he's going to deal with the media or not deal with the media, whether he's going to run the offense or not. It, I think fans just want to win. And unless what he's doing or saying is helping them find a way to do that, I don't think the average fan is going to care or be happy with the fact that he's tweeting about all this other stuff. Yeah, because I, I think most people would feel three ways about that. One, A, Phil really believes what, what he says and what he tweets um, on Twitter. Two, it can look like he's a hater about what's going on with the Warriors and Steph Curry and you know the, the, the job Steve Kerr is doing. Or three, it makes it look like he's really like old school, out of touch with what's going on in today's NBA. 
Yeah, I mean, in, in fairness, and I, I tweeted this the other day, I, I do think it's interesting that, you know, Phil said what he said about Abdul Abdulrahmanov and, you know, um, basically saying, if you feel like you've never seen, you know, what Steph Curry's doing, you know, let me remind you of this, um, or that he reminds uh, him of Mahmoud Abdul-Rauf. And um, I, I kind of retweeted what he said and then said, you know, I, I can't wait to see the hot takes on this. And I was being sarcastic because I was annoyed at how many <laughs> of the hot takes I was going to see in my mentions as a result of what Village just said. Um, but it was interesting, like a day or two later, to see people tweeting um, or retweeting an old post from Steve Kerr saying the same thing. Someone had tweeted him saying, Curry reminds me of Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, and Curry said, I agree. And this was like three or four years ago, but it was pretty interesting to see that he'd said that, one. And then, two, that Curry had been quoted in a, in a piece in the New York Post last February saying the exact same thing, where he kind of laid out three different people that Curry reminded him of or had at least traits or characteristics that reminded him of Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. Uh, and so... I, you know, I, I think sometimes, in fairness to Phil, it's not to say that I always understand what he's getting at, but, you know, his wording, again, it just kind of reminds me of a Twitter troll where he's purposefully vague or not as clear as he could be and then uses, like, the wiggle room to get out of what he's saying. Um, I, I think it's completely fair to say that Curry has some elements of his game that are really reminiscent of Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. Um, and that he, you know, just kind of how quick he is or how he moves off screen or how he shoots with very little space. Um, but, no, I mean, obviously Phil was not saying that they're the same exact player, that that one, you know, that, that he was somehow better than Curry is. I mean, he's not – I don't think he's dumb. Um, I, I do think he has some really archaic thinking with regards to the way the game was played in the 90s versus now. Um, you know, I think a lot of people view things through their prism or through their day so to speak, uh, but I don't think that would somehow make him not intelligent. I mean, he knows more about the game than most people will forget, but, um, you know, I, I think it's worth mentioning that Kerr has said the same things, just in a different way, and uh, so I think sometimes people don't hear it the way that Phil means to say it, or that Phil is not making an effort to say it the way people, the way he thinks people will actually hear it, and I think part of the reason he does it that way is so that people will react and have really visceral reactions, and that's why I'm saying I feel like He's very quietly like a 70, 71-year-old Twitter troll because I think he knows it will make people react, mm. even though he's saying something that a lot of other people agree with. It's the way he's saying what he's saying that gets other people's skin. Well, if people think that you remind them when you play ball, uh, uh, you know, you remind them of Chauncey Billups, to be fair, people, you know, think that I remind them of Mark Price. <laughs> you're splitting, you're splitting double teams. You're splitting. The, you get the pick and roll, and then you split the two defenders. Yeah, light skinned dude, wild hair, can shoot, and they always. You remind me of Mark Price. I'm like, well, if I had Mark Price money, <laughs> then I, I wouldn't mind it. <laughs> yeah, that's a fun guy to be reminded. I don't think people realize how good he was. I think he. Oh, tore, very good. Very good. One of the few players to have tore. Didn't he tear ACLs in both legs? I Maybe I'm so. mixing that up with someone else. He he had like a really rough go of it though, where I think he he either tore them in both legs or that he tore. I, I can't remember. Maybe it was just that he tore his ACL and came back and was still good after he did it. Maybe that's what it was. But he's like a really unusually talented player and one of the first point guards to really score like that on the move in terms of his jump shot. Like he didn't have to be set 
to shoot a jump shot. He's a very good player. Yeah. Very I, good player. I always tell people he's one of my favorite favorite point guards of all time. And two, he's probably one of or the most underrated point guard of the 90s. And, you know, when you say Mark Price, some people may be like, who's that? What's he play for? And it's like, come on, dude. Like, really? Mark Price? You have no idea who he is? Like, you know, check him out, man. He, uh, I mean, he's, I, I don't, I don't think he's in the Hall of Fame, uh, until that, you know, when people, when someone's not a Hall of Famer, that's part of the reason why people don't know or remember who they were. But he also probably would have had more attention or gotten more publicity had the Jordan era Bulls not always kind of like ripped the hearts out of that Cleveland fan base, you know, because, you know, it would have been Cleveland playing against those Detroit teams instead of the Bulls, maybe. And, um, you know, so they would have had kind of more of those matchups and more of the attention. But he's a very, very good player. Um, and, you know, I think people that, that really know the game and kind of studied the game through the different decades, I think they recognize how good a player he was and how a lot of what he did kind of prompted people to play offense differently in terms of you look at a guy like Steve Nash. Like I said, the, the big thing that Mark Price learned how to do and started taking advantage of was how wide defenses would play pick and rolls and, and, you know, how Mark Price would just dribble in between the two people who were trying to guard one, one pick and roll and, uh, and would get to the basket that way and, or, you know, or pull up for a jump shot in between those two guys. Just very skilled, talented, smart player. And I've, um, you know, I've dealt with him a handful of times over the phone with interviews and stuff. Um, and started doing work as a shooting coach, but he's a really decent guy to deal with. I, I like talking with him. He's really smart. I got three more for you before I go into the Twitter questions because I don't want to forget about that. Um, real quick, Joe Johnson to Miami. What's your, what's your thoughts about that? So far, so good. I mean, I think he shot something like 10 of 13 last night in that game against the Bulls. Um, I wouldn't think offhand that he was a great, great fit. I mean, they have guys that can score already. Um, but, you know, in some ways it makes sense for them because they might be without Bosch for the rest of the year. Um but, you know, it's just interesting to watch someone who kind of plays a slow, methodical pace, and they already had so much isolation basketball at the Wayne Wade to kind of throw another guy out there that does a lot of that. If they can use him primarily as a spot-up shooter, then it's great. Um, you know, if it's just going to be another isolation-based player to pair up with Wade and an offense where really, um, you know, you have a guy like Dragic who needs the ball to run pick and rolls and kind of get the offense moving. They've got some mismatched parts on that team, but I mean they they do have talent. You can't deny that. So Miami has kind of been, always been one of those teams to go get the flashiest name as they can. Uh, but they've also been one of the better teams of teams in the teams in the leagues in the league in the league in making those flashier names fit. Um, so it shouldn't be a shocker that they went out and wanted them and got them. Um, but I'm curious to see how he's going to fit long term. Um, it's never a bad thing to have a score on your bench or on in your starting five to, to make a play in the playoffs when stuff slows down. But um, you know, it, it's just interesting to see them make a play there, and you know, in some ways it might work better than it otherwise would since they don't have Bosch right now. Uh, Chris, we are in 2016, and we're still talking about the dynamic between Amari Mello and Jeremy Lin. Why are we still talking about that? <laughs> Well, mainly because Amari, like always, has kind of has injury issues and um, and has been a DNP so many times this year that basically the first time that Miami came to New York, mm. uh, Amari didn't speak to the media because he wasn't. I don't think he was on the trip. So up until the other day, Amari hadn't made his first return to the Garden as a visiting player yet. 
since he signed with the Knicks. And so that's why it came up and why, you know, the reporters wanted to interview him in the first place. And then, obviously, Amari said what he said. But I think whether he'll acknowledge it or not, no, he never said Carmelo's name. But I think anyone who understands the game and understands the the concept of kind of what happened during Amari's five years in New York knows that, you know, the way he was talking, it very much sounded as if it was Carmelo. And it was very much implied that certain people had issues with Jeremy Lin and didn't want him back or didn't like him at that money that he was going to make or didn't like the level of popularity that he was getting. And so, you know, again, you could make the argument that he's not talking about Carmelo, but why would players that were already not popular care whether Jeremy Lin was popular? You would think that that would only have an effect on guys that were somehow losing their popularity to Jeremy Lin. And Carmelo and Amari were really the only two players that would have run the risk of doing that. Maybe J.R. Smith, who obviously had made comments about Jeremy as well. Um, and about his contract and how people would feel about it. But, um, I mean, the, the one that looked like the clearest shot at Melo to me was the one where, you know, he was asked about the team losing lately. And Amari said something to the effect of, well, it takes a really complete player to pull a team out of a rut like this. And, you know, ironic on the one hand, because I think Carmelo's the only player in the NBA who's leading his team in points, rebounds, and assists per game. One, but two, I mean, Amari has never really been a complete player himself and, you know, acknowledged on his own that he's never really learned how to play defense or never really been taught how to play defense. So, I mean, whether or not he claims he was talking about Carmelo, he never mentioned Melo by name. And to be honest, the media, we weren't smart enough to ask him, who are you talking about when he said that? They just kind of let him talk and let him continue to speak instead of asking him, who do you mean or who are you referring to? Um, so on the one hand, Amari can claim that that's not who he was talking about. And on the other hand, the media should have asked him to clarify exactly who he meant. I'm sure he wouldn't have said Carmelo, but I don't think it somehow makes it less true. Uh, Carmelo obviously um, had feelings about it. and You know, you saw kind of his tweet storm about that whole thing and all these Instagram posts about you know, knowing someone's true intent or, you know, how people come out, you know, how things change when they move on to another situation. So I think it's pretty clear that Melo felt a certain type of way about it. Amari obviously felt the need to clear the air and call Melo to make sure that he knew that those posts, you know, that those quotes weren't about him. I'm pretty sure they were, whether Amari, you know, uh, acknowledges that or not. Uh, Carmelo didn't want to get into what was said during the conversation, so I'm curious as to whether... Carmelo still feels like those were shots at him. I'm sure he, I mean, he's smart enough to know that they probably were. Um, but I don't know. Does it matter right now? No. I mean, I think that the team has way bigger issues, including the fact that Carmelo was getting heckled during the game and then essentially pointed to Jim Dolan and told the fan, take your frustrations out on him, which I thought was, was really, really interesting. Um, you know, or tell him that you want your money back is what he, what he said specifically. Which is, you know, on the one hand, like a funny anecdote, but on the other hand, it's like that's a pretty um, unusual step for someone to take. I don't know that Carmelo really realized how that sounded when he said that, but um, the idea that you would tell a fan to, to go request your money back from the owner, he's sitting right there. Um, yeah. I don't think the Knicks are somehow going to lose their fan base in all this, but I, I see that as a bigger issue, and I see that more as the sort of thing that Dolan would really like or stand for very much. And I, I did think it was interesting that MSG made the point of not showing either that portion of Carmelo's interview or not showing his interview at all. Um, 
in the post-game show because of the fact that that was said. And so when they do stuff like that, they either know that it's going to rub certain people the wrong way if it's shown or that they were told not to air it because it would it would rub the whole in the wrong way. So it, it's all kind of coming to a head here. And that's why I'm saying this is a really big summer in terms of who they get as a coach and you know how much leeway Phil has to make the hires that he wants to as opposed to having to take some input from Dolan here because uh, it, stuff is definitely changing a little bit here. There's, it feels like the seed, seed is kind of changing a little bit. Now, yesterday I was watching um, The Herd on Fox Sports, and I'm a big Colin Cowherd, uh, Cowherd fan, and he had a big you know topic debate about why you know in the NBA – why the Western Conference has been so more dominant than the Eastern Conference over the last 15 years, going back to 2000, and only five, well, one, two, three, four teams have only won the NBA championship out of the Eastern Conference since 2000. That's that's Detroit, Miami, and, and, and Boston. So one, Detroit, Miami, yeah, three teams out of the last 15 years, but they won five championships, five out of 15, and the one point he made was like, well, if you take LeBron out of the uh, of the Eastern Conference and put him in the West, your NBA Finals are going to be Golden State and, and the Raptors. It, it, it's showing how vital LeBron is to, to the to the whole Eastern Conference. But to to you, someone someone who has been covering the NBA for so long, um, is there a true legit reason why the Western Conference has been more dominant than the Eastern Conference over the last fifteen years? Well, I mean, you've had you've had more true chances or opportunities at dynasties over there, just in terms of the way things fell. I mean, if you look at a team like Oklahoma City, and they drafted well, and you look at a team like um, you know the Spurs, they drafted really well. Uh, you look at Golden State, they've drafted really well. I don't think you have as many examples of that on the on the other side of the fence. Um, you know, I, I guess. You look at those teams, the teams that have been really good in the East the last few years, they've all kind of been acquired through trade. You know, you look at Miami and their free agency. And so when you're doing that, it leaves you less flexibility because you have to sign these guys on max deals to to build their teams that way. And, you know, what you're finding in today's NBA in particular is that these rookies are so valuable. If you actually get good ones or you get good young players on rookie contracts, uh, it leaves you with way, way more flexibility to go out and build the rest of the team and to go out and entice free agents to join the team. That's why KP has so much value right now. It's, it's, he's going to be really, really, really affordable for a long time when you kind of contrast what he makes with, with the skill level that he has. And so you look at the fact that the Spurs got guys to sign below market value deals, um, and that that's a huge, huge part of it. It's just the fact that a lot of these teams um, – you know, even even the Lakers to some extent. You know, a lot of these teams had guys on on pretty friendly contracts, or they got really favorable trades. They were able to make. You know, you look at the Lakers and how they were able to obtain Powell, obtain Powell, um, and you obviously already had Kobe in that situation. So, I, I just think a lot of the, the really really great teams in the West had guys that were already on their roster via the draft and affordable because of that. And I think when you look at the other teams and you look at the Eastern Conference, um, they very, very often had teams that were kind of built as opposed to, or I'm sorry, teams that were kind of bought as opposed to built. And um, so it, it makes a major difference in terms of the way you build the team and how much it costs you to build a team like that. Um, and part of the reason that I think Miami was going to really struggle going forward uh, and probably why LeBron wanted out, part of the reason he wanted out is that they – had all these luxury taxes, and they really had no room to really build 
extra talent onto what they already had with that big three. Um, and it's really rare to see teams built like that, but it seems like the, the majority of those sorts of teams, you look at Brooklyn and what the Knicks were trying to do, none of those teams were really original. They were all kind of just, you know, adding on from, from free agency or via trade. And so right. uh, the Western Conference seems to have more homegrown teams, and I think that, that that's probably a big part of the reason why. My final one before I get to the to the Twitter, uh, Twitter questions. Now, if, if the Warriors happen to break the Bulls' record and they win – the NBA Finals. Are fans in the media going to be that quick to anoint this Warriors team as the greatest team in NBA history? Because once Chicago did it back in 96, I think a couple years later, we were all like, well, that Chicago Bowl team was the greatest team in, in NBA history. Are we going to be that quick to anoint the Warriors if they break the record and if they win the, the, the Finals? Probably not. I mean, I don't think you'll be able to argue an objective um, record. You know, if they go 70, 76 and 8 or whatever it is, or, or well, I'm sorry, 76 and 6, I mean, I don't think you're really going to be able to argue that they're not better than a 72 and 10 team. Um, or, you know, at least record wise, I mean, the record will be the record. So what people think is kind of irrelevant. But I, I do think people will probably hold off and want to see them win three, just like the Bulls did twice. Or to see what what happens with Steph in terms of his, his continued evolution as a player. Because I think part of the reason people were really quick to anoint the Bulls was that, A, they'd won three titles twice, or that they were en route to doing that. And secondly, they had what many people even at that time were considering to be the greatest player of all time. And that's the difference here is that, the, you know, while I think Golden State will have probably multiple Hall of Famers when all is said and done, um, Steph still needs to stay healthy enough to be able to make a claim to put himself in a conversation as being one of the greatest players ever. Um, you know, I think he's going to need to do it for more than three, four years, the way that Jordan did it for, you know, 15, 16 years and was an all-star that entire time and, you know, was, was the base of the league that entire time. And so um, when you have the best player and he's the best player for eight, nine years running the way Michael was, to where he literally shifts the title conversation and puts other teams in the conversation when he retires. Uh, Steph hasn't done that yet. He's, he's been incredible. You could argue that he's having one of the best individual seasons of all time this year. And I think PER-wise, he's actually ahead of anything that Jordan ever did so far this year. But um, I, I do think it's more about sustainability. And when you talk about great, great NBA teams, uh, people would probably still put the Bulls in front of Golden State just because of the longevity of what the Bulls were able to do for not only the six title years, but like I said, even those two years where they didn't win and the Rockets did. Um, obviously, you know, a lot of people would argue that the Bulls could have won eight in a row based on the fact that Michael retired and wasn't there for those two years. So that's what I'm curious to see is, is whether or not Golden State not only breaks the record this year, but whether they win a title at the end of this year as well, and then what happens in year three of all this. Because then I think when you start talking about a three-peat, you know, it it should put you in that conversation to, to be the greatest team of all time. And I think even even just winning two in a row, if they go out and they win 75, 76 games this year, um, I think you're going to have to really open up that conversation because I don't think if they finish four games better than a really – crazy Bulls team, um, you know, I don't really know how you can argue that they weren't the best, at least for one individual season. All right, Chris, we got a question from Dylan underscore Watson. What free agent point guard this summer would be best to fit the Knicks system? And is moving Carmelo a feasible option for either party? 
you know, I, I don't know who is best as a free agent point guard. I know everyone says Conley. Uh, I think he's solid. I, I don't think he's a, a superstar. Obviously, no one would put him in that stratosphere because you've got too many good ones like, like Steph and um, you still got Chris Paul is very good, and obviously Russell Westbrook. I think a lot of people would say is the second best point guard in the league now. And you've got Lowry and all these other guys. I don't think he's a star. I think he's a very, very good player. Um, you know, who's not that flashy. He's actually kind of like the anti-star, and is probably underappreciated. But I don't think either way you slice it that you can really justify paying him twenty-five, twenty-six million dollars a year, even though that is a very, very big need for you. Um, you know, if Lopez was your frontline center and you're going to pay him $14, 15000000 million a year, I don't know you can justify paying Conley twenty five, um, especially when he's about to be at the same point age-wise as Carmelo. Um, so I don't know. I mean, that's a tough call. Um, that's a situation where, quite frankly, they might be better served um, really piecing everything they have together and maybe making a trade to go get someone else. Um, I think it, it could be as simple as going to at least trying and – Maybe you go pry someone like a Darren Collison if, if Sacramento wants Rajon Rondo back. Um, maybe you go get Collison or someone like that. I mean, I, I'm just at a point now where I'm kind of – I would be frustrated with the Knicks front office because I, I think they've blown opportunities to kind of see what they could do with their point guard position. They go out and get Jim Fredette. I, I'd like to see what someone like Tony Roten would do, not because I think Tony Roten is the answer, but because I think you need to see what a penetrating – point guard who has real speed to get around the heads on a pick and roll or something like that to see how he changes the contours of the offense to see whether your offense actually can work when you've got kind of a speedster at that position the way that most NBA teams do right now so I'd like to see that and then I think it would kind of help inform what sort of what sort of point guard you want to get this summer I don't think it needs to be Conley but it clearly needs to be someone more athletic than you've had and I think that this would you know kind of using this as an audition stage for different guys would at least show you what can work and what can't work within the triangle. So that would help inform my decision about who they should go get. But um, I don't know that I would be comfortable giving Conley 25 or $26 million a year. I, I know why they would do it. I would understand it. But I would probably be a little bit more comfortable aiming lower than that and either getting someone via trade who is lesser than Conley or waiting until 2017 when the crop really opens up. And I think you've got – uh, Chris Paul and, and Russell Westbrook and a number of other guys are going to be paid that year. All right. Uh, at DK Media NYC, uh, the Knicks the Knicks need a point guard badly, obviously. Um, is Ty Lawson an option seeing that the Rockets bought him out? Uh, well, there have already been some reports out there that make it look like, no, he's not. Um, and I had this question all along. He, he fits perfectly what I'm saying about letting someone – kind of play their game and, and seeing if they can kind of fit to, to triangle offense still. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ty Lawson for years was one of the players that get, got to the basket most and uh, was a pretty good finisher at the basket. And very, very fast, very quick and kind of everything the Knicks don't have from an offensive standpoint in terms of getting to the basket and freeing up corner threes for people. But the, the question with him is different. He's, he's more of a baggage question. And um, I think you would have a really tough time convincing people like me that actually care about the message as opposed to just the on-court product. Um, you moved so quickly to get JR out of here um, and kind of badmouthed him all the way out. And had the, the comments that you made to Charlie Rosen at the end of the season about how JR 
was doe-eyed and almost looked like he started to cry um, when Phil started to talk about his commitment to the team and how poorly he was playing and how he was questioning effort and his heart and stuff like that. Um, you you talk about Jr. and how seriously he takes the job, and then you go bring in someone like Kyle Lawson, um, who has had multiple issues off the court, has kind of bad mouthed certain elements of his organization in the past, and had runs with coaches, and shown up late for stuff, and come back from the All Star break late. I'm going to question how seriously I should take your criticisms of other people if you're going to overlook their uh, shortcomings and, and bad mouth JR on the way out and say that you needed to trade him because he wasn't a learner and he couldn't pick up the offense quickly enough. I'm, I'm going to question you if you go bring in someone like Ty Lawson because I feel like your message all of a sudden uh, sounds hypocritical. Um, so I, I probably wouldn't bring him in, but it would be for different rationale. I, I think there are other guys you can get that maybe aren't as talented as he is but do bring some of the same sorts of things to the table that he does on a, a lesser scale. And that's why I was saying Tony Roten. Tony Roten, I think, led the league in, in drives per game maybe two years ago before he had the ACL injury. And so, I, like I said, I think you get a good enough sense of whether or not the triangle could really work using a more athletic point guard and whether or not, you know, whether that helps to some extent to free things up within the offense when you have someone that can get to the basket more easily. So that's probably what I would do. I'm not quite clear on why the Knicks haven't done that already with Wilton since he's been a free agent for a while. But, um, no, I'd probably pass on Ty Lawson. I think the Knicks are probably more likely to do that as well. Uh, two more. At Fresh Colbar 7, uh, I guess this is kind of generic and not really just from the point guard aspect, but who can we possibly bring in this summer that will allow Melo to be himself and have a winning team that can win some games? Um, well, I think I think Nick Batum would be a really interesting pickup. You know, there's no sense of what he'll want. Uh, and I think you could make the argument that with the way the cap is going to go up, then maybe he's a max player. He's a very, very good player who does a lot of different things well. Uh, can defend when he really wants to. Um, long, long arms. Um, quick, you know, can create off the dribble. Uh, can shoot. Um, it just seems like a solid player and seems like he'd be a really good fit for a system like the Triangle if they're going to continue to run it. So that would probably be one of the first guys I would say that I'd be interested in if I'm a Knicks fan. Um, also, Evan Fournier uh, from Orlando, I think he's a good player uh, who can kind of play. You know, he seems like a, a good combo guard, uh, probably more of a shooter off the dribble than really a creator. But um you know, could play either guard position in, in the type of offense the Knicks run is a slasher, um, not the greatest on defense, but is not going to be such a liability there to where he kills you the way that Calderon does a lot of times. So I I think that that would be a good pickup for them. I think that uh, Batum would be a really good pickup for them. Uh, I don't think they need to invest as heavily in the idea of post players now since you've got Robin Lopez, you have KP, who's worked out way better than I think anyone would have imagined early on. Mm-hmm. So I would probably look to the wing. You know, I think it's a, a wing-driven league right now, point guard and wing-driven league, and the Knicks are just really short at that position. Uh, they don't have enough guys that can make a difference there. They're giving minutes to Sasha Vujicic there. Um, you know, they were toast as soon as Lance Thomas got injured. And Carmelo got injured. Carmelo was their second-best winger, realistically. And the fact that that's the case, I think you clearly need to go upgrade at that position or at least upgrade to where you can have guys that can step into a role and you know, and, and give you some extra depth there and maybe not rely so heavily on a guy like Lance Thomas if you're going to bring him back. So I think both of those guys would be 
capable of starting, you know, and, um, you know, maybe would even give you a little bit of room to consider dangling Robin Lopez out there if you feel like KP is ready to take the next step. And then you're in a much different position if you're able to make a deal like that. So we'll see. But I, I think the wing would be my focus if I couldn't get a point guard this summer. And um, I think Batum and, and Fournier would both be very good options. And the final Twitter question goes to I underscore Mustafa34. Um, I, I'm guessing he's a Celtic fan. Maybe that's why I put him last. <laughs> um, he said, what are your viewpoints with the Boston Celtics? Do you see them as a threat in the Eastern Conference? And um, the, 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 the likelihood of Kevin Durant thinking about going to the Celtics? Uh, I don't think that will happen. Um... I'm not sure why. I mean, it'd be fascinating if you put him on that team because I think that they have enough depth, depth around him to make a, a run at the Eastern Conference Finals uh, or, or, or maybe even the Finals um, because he's just so good. But And he would have a really good coach around him, which is what people have questioned for years with regards to Scotty Brooks and, and now to some extent Billy Donovan. Um, the fact that no one was willing to stagger his minutes with Russell Westbrook's minutes was just so weird. And now you finally see Billy Donovan doing that two-thirds, three-quarters of the way through the season for really the first time in Kevin Durant's tenure there. Um, but anyway, I, I mean, I like Boston, but I, I don't know how much of my like for them is because of Brad Stevens. I like Brad Stevens a lot. I think that they have a completely fine roster, and it reminds me of a, a more balanced roster that the Knicks have where and a younger version of the roster the Knicks have where they've got guys instead of the Knicks who have a lot of guys that could be really good on offense on a given night are good at defense uh, Boston has guys that can do a little bit of both and it seems like their whole roster is like that for the most part and really one of the most glaring parts of the roster that wasn't like that was David Lee and they you know they obviously bought him out because he really didn't fit what they were trying to do so I think they just have a really good sense of what they want in Boston, and a really good sense of how guys fit together, and a lot of that is due to Brad Stevens just being a fantastic coach. You, I was watching a YouTube video the other day of the out-of-bounds plays that the guy calls, and I mean, that's stuff that you can pick up as a fan anyway, just the fact that it seems like they really thrive when they take timeouts and then call a play, because Brad Stevens puts guys in the right positions, but um, you know, I don't know long-term if I would love this roster. I don't think Isaiah Thomas is a good enough scorer, um, are efficient enough when it comes to having to play playoff-style defenses and having to play against them for seven-game series. You know, teams, if they have to, will go put, um, you know, from a Knicks standpoint, will put like a Lance Thomas type of defender on him or someone that is 6'7", to try to guard him, to try to, you know, heal him off and make sure that he's not able to shoot or pass over bigger defenders. And so I don't know that he would work as your – as your main go-to guy in the playoffs. And uh, that, I think that's their biggest problem. I think they realize that. I think it's why they've been willing to try to trade with teams for a Carmelo or for a Kevin Love. But, um, you know, I, I am interested to see what they do going forward because I do like how hard they play defense. And I, I don't think you can really teach, you know, the way that Brad Stevens and that team play defense. Um, and so that's that's what I like about them. But um, if you add a, a legitimate top-line scorer to that team, like a Durant or someone like that, I think they automatically become one of the three or four best teams in the league um, because they're already that good on defense. Yeah, you know what? It's crazy because someone told me, you know, uh, you know, Boston's third in the Eastern Conference, right? And I'm like, 
no, no they're not. <laughs> and I had to double check. I'm like, wow, the Celtics really have a really great record, and they are third in the East. And I'm like, I think this is right by the All-Star break. I'm like, they're not third. They're probably in the top eight, but they're not third. And they, they're third. Well, Chris? Same way that a lot of people think about the Bulls, where you just kind of assume they're the top five team in the East. I think as of right now, they're out of the playoff race. They're, I think they're tied, either tied for eighth or they're ninth, but they don't hold the tiebreaker. So, I mean, it's you know we're so used to you know Miami and I guess now for the last year or so Cleveland and you know Atlanta and Chicago, but the truth is, I mean, the most consistent teams in the NBA for the last couple of weeks now have been Portland. Mm-hmm. And Boston has been right there. Boston's been very, very good. I mean, they're just very quiet in how they go about doing everything. And they kind of remind me, I mean, a lot of people predicted this coming into the season that essentially Boston would end up being last year's version of Atlanta, um, where they don't have a bona fide star, but they have a bunch of guys that are borderline all-stars who just very quietly go about their job, don't score that much, but just, you know, they defend the hell out of you. And and make things tough for you and are coached well. And I think that's a lot of what we saw from Atlanta last year. And those teams fly under the radar, but they're really annoying to play in the playoffs. And so, um, you know, I don't think Boston will go too, too far, but I, you know, I definitely think they they should and could get to the second round. And, you know, depending on the matchup they get and, you know, what Brad Stevens is able to kind of pull out of his hat, they, they could get to the Eastern Conference Finals for sure. Now, the final question before I, I, I let you go. Um, I always tell people you're a great follow on Twitter, great to meet in person. And um, I, I was coming across your Twitter account, I, I believe, within the last week. And um, you wrote something that was kind of like true and funny, um, you know, paraphrasing. It was more like um, if, if Twitter was around earlier, uh, you know, for certain things in sports and, and you would want to see what kind of reaction you would get from media and fans uh, and, and what that reaction would have been. Uh, what are, to you, what event or what events that happened in sports you wish Twitter was around for? Was it like when the Bulls were winning the you know back-to-back three-peats or you know, Mike Tyson era in boxing, um, the Kobe and Shaq era with the Lakers, the Yankees three-peat, um, you know, four out of five? What, what events, what era do you wish Twitter was around for so you can get that kind of reaction? Um, I mean, there's several things. I don't know if it's teams. You know, obviously, I think people would have liked to have seen how folks reacted to Jordan and and maybe LeBron's first few years in the league and stuff like that. But, I mean, sometimes it's it's moments. I mean, thinking about what the brawl at the Palace would have been like, you know, and how people would have reacted to something like that on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Um, Given that we react really crazy when people just, you know, like have a little flap boxing fest, you know, in, in a game, individuals like, you know, DeMarcus Cousins and other people getting into it, or uh-huh. a couple of years ago when James Harden, uh, or not James Harden, I'm sorry, but uh, Metal World Peace elbowed James Harden, and we all kind of, uh, you know, flew off the handle about that, and we're like, wow, did you see that? And little stuff like that, um, you know, how excited and how, how, kind of how revved up Twitter gets over things like that, I can't really imagine, you know, players going into the crowd and how people would have reacted to something like that. But, right. you know, the Holyfield-Tyson fight um, would have been another example of, you know, someone biting someone's ear, pretty much biting their ear off, yeah. um, something like that. I think Jordan's last shot as a bull and that the series against Utah would have been pretty crazy to have, to have witnessed. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. I, I think 
uh, Barry Bonds, you know, during what he was doing, uh, you know, and breaking the record for baseball would have been interesting to watch. Um, and the other thing that would be interesting, not only just to watch those moments unfold on Twitter, but also to see how people reacted to those things and how excited they were about them at one point, and then kind of how everyone, you know, how despised Barry Bonds was by certain people um, shortly after that when it became very, very clear and obvious to everyone that he cheated. And so, like, seeing how many fans he would have had as a result of everything that was happening then, and then how many of those people kind of would have done an about-face and, you know, washed their hands with him. And, you know, I, I think you see a lot of that now, and it's kind of funny that people, you know, their whole accounts dedicated and set up to kind of um, kind of basically make note of people that reverse their positions on certain things. And I, so I think that would be interesting, too, to look at how people felt at that moment then and now how we talk about them now. Um, and sometimes you get that with columnists where someone will pull up an old column from the early 1990s or, or even now. I think it's more something you see with politics where people will look at what Hillary Clinton said in 1994 or 1995 and now bring it bring it up now in 2016 and, you know, kind of claim that uh, there's dissonance between what she was saying at the time and what she's saying now or what she's arguing. And so people's opinions change on things, but it would be interesting to see how you felt very, very solidly this way about this thing, and now you feel totally different. Why? And so, you know, the ability to call people out on things and to show inconsistencies in thinking would be interesting as well. But um, there, there are any number of things. I don't think I would remember whole teams or think it'd be interesting to watch whole takes on teams, you know, from one season to another. But just individual moments, I think, is what makes Twitter cool and uh, what makes Twitter cool. And, you know, Steph Curry's shot against Oklahoma City, you know, wasn't a, a shot that won a championship for a team, but it was a shot that might help the team break a record for a season. I think that was pretty cool for that reason. Hey, you know what? Maybe I just gave you something to write about when the next season is officially over. Uh, no, I, I'm not going to be using my Twitter 15 years from now to figure out what I said about this team lately. That's okay. I'll, I'll save it for Golden State for, for Steph and whatever, whatever he's able to do. Because, yeah, lately the Knicks have not been very fun to watch. Not been not even that entertaining, which is hard for them to do because I feel like they entertain without even trying, at least from a comic standpoint. But lately, I haven't even had that much fun watching them. Hey, man, like like all Knicks fans say, there's always next year. So hopefully, you know, they can turn around and really, you know, get the fans what they want and all that hard-earned money they pay for. So hopefully... It'll be soon. But Chris Herring, thank you for joining us. Uh, definitely appreciate it. As always, uh, you can follow Chris on Twitter at HerringWSJ. A great follow, great uh, great writer for the Wall Street Journal. If you ever meet him in person, he's a great dude. Uh, Chris, thank you again, my man, and I appreciate it. No problem at all. Thank you for having me, Randy. All right, Chris.